Hello everyone and welcome to the Legal Trends podcast by Hannes Snellman. In this first series, we discuss international litigation trends with prominent lawyers from around the world and apply our Nordic perspective to them. What are the current litigation trends in the world? Will they reach the Nordics anytime soon or are they already here? My name is Anna Maratammin and I'm a partner in the Dispy Resolution team at Hannes Snellman. And I am Helen Lehta, managing associate in the Dispute Resolution team at Hannes Snellman. In this episode, we discuss current trends in investment arbitration with Laura Hallonen, of counsel at Wagner Arbitration in Berlin. Laura has 15 years of experience in investment arbitration and public international law at law firms in London, Paris, and Geneva. Uh, Laura is qualified to practice in England and Wales, but is a Finnish national of which we are obviously very proud. Welcome to our podcast, Laura. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. And Laura will be joined today by one of our colleagues, Pontus Evalov, who is a partner in the dispute resolution practice at Hannes Nelman's Stockholm office. Pontus will comment upon similar trends through what he sees in his practice here in the Nordics. Hello, Pontus, and welcome. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Today we will be talking about investment treaty arbitration, and these are cases where an investor, a company or an individual brings proceedings against a state hosting that company or that individual's investment. Cases can be brought either under bilateral investment treaties between two states, say Sweden and Romania, or the Netherlands and Russia, or under multilateral agreements between multiple states, such as the Energy Charter Treaty, to which, for example, multiple EU member states are parties. There are thousands of bilateral investment treaties that have followed the first agreements entered into the 1950s between, I believe, Germany and Pakistan, and the disputes themselves have increased in number, especially in the current century. With that segue, uh, we will address the first question to Laura. Would you like to kick off the discussion by summarizing investment arbitrations briefly? Uh, what do they typically concern? What do they typically look like? And and what other features do you see in, in your practice as an investment arbitration practitioner? Sure. But before discussing the arbitrations themselves, uh, perhaps allow me to take a step back and clarify and and really remind the listeners what permits these cases to be brought and that is international investment law. Modern investment law is created by bilateral investment treaties between two states. They are traditionally between capital importing and capital exporting states, but that is beginning to blur now. For example, when we have an investment treaty between China and Denmark, it is hard to say which is supposed to be the capital exporting and which is the capital importing state out of those two. But what these treaties typically do is they create rights for foreign investors. So in my example, for Chinese investors in Denmark and Danish investors in China, the most typical of these protections are protecting investments from, for example, unlawful expropriation and against discrimination. And what the treaties also often contain is a clause that allows a foreign investor to initiate international arbitration before a neutral forum in case a dispute arises with the host state. And that is what we are talking about today. These arbitrations used to be quite rare, but uh, these days there are so many of them that it is hard to say what is a typical measure that gives rise to a case or even a sector in which it is most likely 
to occur. On a general level, investment arbitrations will arise if there is unforeseen and unforeseeable government interference in a business that really has a massive impact on it, which of course means that some sectors like energy, finance, and infrastructure, to give a few examples, are more prone to it than others. But the disputes themselves can really range from uh, the classic direct expropriation of foreign-owned properties, which, for example, Venezuela has been conducting uh, still in recent years, to abrupt changes in the regulation of the energy sector, like the case that has been initiated by Vattenfall against Germany following their rapid exit from nuclear energy. So the range is, range is large. But if I were to glimpse at a crystal ball and try to predict where we will see disputes in the future, taking into account this general framework of unforeseen, unforeseeable measures that have a massive impact on the business, my guess would be that we will also see some cases in the coming months and years arising, for example, from the COVID crisis, as it looks like some governments have used the crisis as a bit of a fig leaf for measures that favor domestic businesses and even go as far as try to drive out foreign ones. Thanks, Laura. That was a very comprehensive overview of, uh, of investment treaties. And on that note, Pontus, how would you say investment arbitration cases differ from commercial arbitrations between companies? So if you have an investment arbitration case, what should you take into account? Well, there are several differences between investment arbitration and commercial arbitrations, but there are also several similar features. I will come back to those. But if we look at the main differences, of course, the legal framework is different. Whereas a commercial arbitration is based on a contract and the applicable law to that contract, investment arbitration is based on public international law, as Laura said. Another difference is time. Proceedings in investment arbitrations are often more time-consuming than ordinary commercial arbitration. There are often procedural steps that need to be taken in investment arbitrations, for example, a waiting period or, as it's called, cooling-off period, during which the parties shall negotiate and try to settle the dispute. Moreover, jurisdictional objections are more frequent in investment arbitration than in commercial arbitration. And those jurisdictional objections are often handled separately in investment arbitration. One thing is also that investment arbitration always involves a state. And this complicates things. Often there is more at stake in the dispute than just money. Political interests should always be taken into account and should not be underestimated. And finally, I would say that the main difference is the publicity. Investment arbitration are often available in the public domain already during the proceedings, and the awards are published. And the publicity in relation to the political interests may be a complex brew, and uh, the balancing act is delicate, and I believe that Laura will discuss this in more detail later. But setting aside the main differences, there are also similar features between investment arbitration and commercial arbitrations. And the similar feature is that the arbitration proceedings as such is quite similar. 
The parties exchange a number of briefs. Witnesses and experts are invoked and uh, hearings are held. So with respect to the, the actual proceedings, there are no such huge differences as you may think of in the first place. Laura, Pontus alluded to basically the other party in an, in an investment treaty arbitration always being a state and that having certain implications for the dispute um, in terms of, of how long it takes and with, with whom you're negotiating and what it means in, uh, with the publicity and, um, and the openness of the proceedings to some extent. In your experience, how does that affect basically the, the opportunity of settling cases or, or negotiating uh, with the state party? To what extent is that possible in the first place? And, and if so, then how do you approach this theme? Well, broadly speaking, I would say that most governments are open to negotiate and settle their disputes. Pontus already alluded to the fact that many of these treaties, they in fact contain a mandatory notification and negotiation period, which shows at the very least that the states wished when entering into the treaty to encourage settlement of disputes when they arise. When I advise investors who are faced with a potential dispute, I always encourage them to seek settlement. But there are a few factors that need to be taken into account, in particular, when wishing to negotiate with states. First, states are often more bureaucratic, so you must be prepared for everything to take longer than it would between businesses. And secondly, the people negotiating on the government side are likely to not have been involved in the measures that gave rise to the dispute. So you must be more open and generous in providing information to them. Now, there is always a political element, and Pontus is absolutely right on that. And that means that there are some disputes where that element is so large and they are politically so sensitive that government officials will prefer to go to arbitration and to deal with the decision, even when they know that it's likely to be against them, rather than take the responsibility and deal with the political fallout from settling and paying money to a foreign investor from the state budget based on their decision. Perhaps maybe depending also on whether it was the previous government regime or, or the current government regime that has undertaken those measures. 100%. That is absolutely true. So in, it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but sometimes having a change of government is actually good for the investor. An example of this that most people will have heard of is Russia when faced with the claims by the foreign UCOS shareholders. It was absolutely clear that Russia was not going to negotiate or settle those claims. But I would say that these are the minority. It's almost always worth trying to settle. Um, but I'd also like to emphasize that there's no need to wait for the harmful measure to be taken before mentioning that you have rights under an investment treaty that have been violating and, and entering potentially into negotiations. It is often preferable for the business to prevent the measure from being adopted or have it modified to be less harmful than have an arbitration after the fact, even if you will get damages at that stage. Now, as an example here, I could contrast the Spanish and Portuguese governments' changes to their renewable energy regimes. Um, Spain introduced its changes without much consultation and was faced with an onslaught of investment arbitrations, most of which it has since then lost. Portugal, on the other hand, it involved the investors in its reform planning and faced no disputes. 
Now, I don't know for a fact, because I wasn't involved, that Portugal's investment treaty obligations were mentioned in those negotiations, but I would be very surprised if they had not been taken into account. And that's a good point to make, that these are also sort of long-term projects, not only for the investor, but also for the state. And in, in that sense, sort of hearing from the stakeholders is perhaps something that you have to do one way or the other, either up front or then in sort of suits that follow. So Pontus, looking at the cases we've seen in the Nordics, obviously we all know there's been an increasing amount of Nordic activity on the investment arbitration front. Looking at the cases we've seen up here in the Nordics thus far, what would you say the trend is? Do you think we'll see Nordic states getting sued more often or Nordic companies acting as claimants more often or both? Uh, well, let me start by saying that for quite long, the Nordics seem to be sort of immune against investment arbitration. And I believe that the game changer, in fact, at least to some extent, was when Vattenfall initiated the first investment arbitration against Germany in 2009. And uh, this dispute related to a construction of a coal-fired power plant in Hamburg. Later in 2012, Vattenfall initiated a second investment arbitration against Germany, and that was for the decision of the German government to, to shut down nuclear power plants in Germany. And I think that the arbitrations against Germany showed that investment arbitration could be used also against your neighbors and not only against, for example, former Soviet republics. Now, I would say that the genie is out of the bottle. And although it's difficult to speak of a trend, I believe that we will see more investment arbitrations in the Nordics, and this will include both Nordic companies and Nordic states. For Nordic companies, I believe that the Vattenfall example shows that Nordic companies must not be so humble and risk avert when it comes to investment arbitration. So do I take that to mean you're saying basically be aware of the fact that you have rights based on investment treaties? Yeah, I think that the infringements on investments made by Nordic companies abroad should not be accepted. And, and uh, I think that if the companies or the investors are aware of the bilateral investment treaties with other countries, they can, as Laura said, they could avoid a dispute in the first place by just emphasize their rights under these bilateral investment treaties. But if it comes to that, that you need to go to arbitration, you should not be afraid to do that because investment arbitration is a rather effective tool to police such behavior of the country of the investment. And as I mentioned before, although investment arbitration may be complex as such, it's not rocket science. It's uh, something that, that uh, you can do in the same way as you, you can have a dispute in, in commercial arbitration. In the sort of recent year, we've perhaps seen claims being brought against the Nordic countries. Is that a trend that you see may continue? Or is that something, a one-off that we shall see how what happens with that? I think for various reasons, I, I think that, that the Nordic countries are not immune anymore to, to investment arbitration. And I think that we will see more cases against the Nordic countries 
And I may come back to the industries and the decisions that, that are made that increases the risk for, for such cases against the Nordic countries. But I think that we will see more of these uh, cases. And I think in 2020 alone, we saw cases brought against Denmark and Sweden and Norway. And perhaps we'll come back to whether there's a common denominator there. But but sort of uh, both under a multilateral treaty, the Energy Charter Treaty, and also under bilateral investment treaties. And, and in that case, perhaps that those cases are here to stay. I think that there are two two major features that may increase the risk of having these investment arbitration against your countries. And first one is the quite radical political decisions that are now made in the name of saving the planet, i.e. the environmental discussions that we have. Of course, it is very good to these decisions to, to save the planet. But on the other hand, you must see that you do not infringe investments in the energy sector, for example, in, in your home country. This is uh, one area where I see that the risk will increase. As you mentioned, Anna-Maria, we have already seen this in relation to a case against Sweden relating to the mining industry. And it may be also a risk if the government decides to shut down all the nuclear plants in, in Sweden, which have been discussed. The other area is, or the, the other reason for this increased risk, I would say, is the, the rising protectionism that you see in different countries. And um, I think that Laura was already discussing this, that if you're looking only to secure your own industries and uh, trying to have other investors excluded, that could be a problem. And we have seen a case in Sweden in that respect as well, quite recently, when Huawei was disqualified to participate in a public procurement for the mobile network. That is the other area where we may see more investment arbitrations because of the protectionism. And as a follow-up of that, they are now suing the Swedish government. So uh, it remains to be seen where we stand on that. Laura, you spent your entire career working on international law cases, and you've seen the case law develop over the last uh, 15, 20 years. What would you say for in-house counsel at Nordic companies um, who are working in international companies with investments abroad, what would in-house counsel need to understand about international law to understand sort of what their companies need to watch out in, in the investment countries in, in which they're operating? Well, this area of the law is, while I obviously think it's fascinating, I think Pontus is correct in saying it's not rocket science. Um, having said that, there is, as with everything to do with law, there is a vast amount of fairly complicated technical law, both on the substance and, and the procedure of these cases. So I don't think it would be realistic to expect in-house counsel to know really any of that. Um, what I would recommend, though, is that in-house counsel be aware that these treaties exist and where to look to ensure that there is one that protects their investments in a given country. And ideally, of course, at the point in time when making their investment, rather than only when the harmful measures are being planned or even already taken. Um, 
if you as in-house counsel start looking for the treaties when the dispute has already arisen, you may find out that there isn't actually one that protects your particular investment in the particular country that it has been made in. And then it's too late to restructure it in a way that will uh, give it protection. And then as a very practical tip, these treaties are almost all available online. So they are not hard to find. UNCTAD, which is the UN Conference on Trade and Development, has an online investment policy hub that contains a pretty comprehensive collection of all the investment treaties in its international investment agreements. Navigator, and uh, this can be found at investmentpolicy.unctad.org. So putting that in as a tab in your Internet Explorer is a good place to start. This is a very practical level tip. Um, Laura, what would you say, I mean, for companies established within the EU, are you looking at both sort of country level agreements? What should you understand about uh, the correlation between EU and, and the member states themselves? Well, the situation is very tricky within the EU. Now, before the latest couple of rounds of enlargements of the EU, the now, let's call them new member states, so more towards the east and some of them south, uh, the EU Commission was very actively encouraging them to enter into bilateral investment treaties with the old, quote-unquote, EU member states. So there are a lot of intra-EU investment treaties in place. But the EU, and in particular the Commission's stance, changed about a decade ago, and they have been very actively trying to get rid of these and trying to resist arbitrations that have been brought on the basis of them. And this means that currently this area of the law is very much in a flux. There is a plurilateral agreement in place between most, but not all, EU states that are terminating these, including getting trying to get rid of, let's put it that way, their sunset clauses, which provide a certain foreseeability of protection for our pre-existing investments. Um, but most notably, uh, the Nordic countries are not party to those. So, so I think they are looking to terminate their agreements separately, but they have not yet done so. Let's just say that it is entirely unclear, unfortunately, right now, how and if intra-EU investments are protected by these treaties or not. So that is, of course, not a position anyone wants to be in and certainly not in-house counsel who is looking at what is the best course of action for, for their company. And then going forward, perhaps we, you have to sort of take into account that the EU is trying to sort of protect uh, European companies at large, but uh, you may in some instances be better off with with your national governments, governments sort of agreements with third states. Um, but as you say, fascinating area of the law, and, and we look forward to those developments. Great for us as practicing lawyers, but uh, I'm sure it's less fascinating for in-house lawyers who have to deal with this on a, on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> yeah, there's that point too. <laughs> So as we are now nearing the end of the podcast, we would like to ask you some more lighthearted questions, which we are asking all of our guests. So firstly, what would be the most interesting litigation development which you have either seen in the last few years or which you anticipate to see in the future? Pontus, would you like to start? 
I think that the saying in Sweden is that we're always two years behind the UK and uh, the UK is always two years behind the US. Um, and then Finland is two years behind Sweden. <laughs> Actually, on the vaccination front, that's not true. <laughs> so, Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> it's more than two years now since you saw the cases against um, professional advisors in the UK and previously in the US. I think that that is a trend that has now come to Sweden and that you're seeking to hold professional advisors or board of directors liable for whatever reason. Uh, it could be a poor investment. It could be poor decision for the company. It could be poor accountant service provided or, or whatever. But you're going for the deep pockets now in Sweden. And what is easy to, to measure is that the insurance policies has increased in price significantly the past five years or so for these professional advisors. And I, I think that trend has only started. So I think that we will see more of those cases in the future. We may also have a podcast episode on that. Yeah. And some lawyer colleague is going to be uh, less popular around the others uh, at, at yeah. future conferences when they once resume. <laughs> <laughs> what about Laura? What kind of interesting trends are you seeing? Well, I do like the saving the planet, as Pontus put it. Uh, I'm looking at this trend, which is an international or let's say European trend for now. Um, not just as a lawyer, but as a citizen and, and a human being. And I, and I find it very exciting that there are these driven and innovative lawyers and NGOs and plaintiffs who are bringing these cases in different countries where they take international environmental instruments like the Paris Agreement and domestic litigation that has been enacted on the basis of them, and they find real teeth in them. And they uh, take governments to court. We've seen this happen first some years ago before the Dutch Supreme Court. And earlier this year, it was the French Conseil d'État. And, and most recently, I think it was last week, the German Constitutional Court that found that these uh, laws, these international agreements, they provide real hardcore legal obligations to governments to do something now to stall the climate crisis and not keep kicking the can down the road to future governments and future politicians, which is what they've been uh, quite keen to do um, in my perceptions. So, uh, And we, of course, have the big one coming, which is currently going on before the Re European Court of Human Rights, initiated against all the member states by a group of Portuguese teenagers and GLAN. And I find this a very, very exciting trend to follow and, uh, and I think it's going to continue and perhaps we will see it also in the Nordics in the coming years. That's a brilliant segue to our next episode, which is going to focus exactly on these cases. <laughs> uh, but, but thanks, Laura. We'll have you as a guest star on that one. With that, what would be the most interesting thing that you know about the Nordics, which you would want to share with our listeners? Laura, we know you're a Finn. So what's your answer on this one? Well, being a Finn, it always, when I'm asked about something like this, I have this uh, inherent moment of embarrassment and, and humility where I don't want to say anything interesting or, or nice about my country. So I often, <laughs> I often pass the buck to my life partner who, uh, who is not Nordic. So what he says, I do actually find interesting as an answer. He says that when you get to know the Nordics a little bit better, 
um, you discover that there is actually in people's mindset a very fundamental and deep-rooted belief in equality, um, more so than in other nations. And he thinks that once you understand that, then you start to understand why the societies function the way they do, because this has an impact on really everything from education to tax collection and attitude towards tax collection. So I find that quite a fascinating outside perception on the Nordics. That is interesting. And Pontus, what would be your your answer to this question? I have uh, actually an outsider view, but Finland is often referred to as the country of a thousand lakes. Well, as a lawyer, I, I needed to check if that was true. And in fact, it was not true. Finland has like more than 160,000 lakes. So it's uh, it's a lot more than it's known for. And I think that Finland is a, is a terrific place if you want to go fishing or go on one of two or three or a thousand of those lakes. That's uh, for sure. Pontus, that was a very Swedish answer. I must say that you are extremely polite and complimenting to others. <laughs> we may also have forbid him from raising the issues of football <laughs> and ice hockey. <Yeah. laughs> But as a Swede, I, I must also be humble to say that Sweden's highest mountain is no longer the highest. And unfortunately, I realized that when I had climbed the highest mountain in Sweden and realized that it was not the highest one anymore. Because of the climate change, the glacier had melted. So the peak that was the highest was actually 100 meters away. And I couldn't get there because it was a deep ravine in between. This so. is what happens when you fail to do due diligence before going hiking. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so what would you say is the funniest moment you've had in a hearing or in a courtroom? Would Laura like to start? Um, there are always lots of funny moments, but they're often funnier for the participants than they are for outsiders. But I suppose there is one anecdote, which I hope doesn't require insider information to, to appreciate it. I was involved a few years ago in a, in a big investment arbitration that uh, arose in the alcohol and beverages industry. And um, we had both of the parties had brought to the hearing as evidence some bottles. And they stood there before the tribunal during the party's opening statements and then while the fact witnesses were being examined. And uh, then the expert witnesses started giving their evidence and opposing counsel turned to us and said, we'd like to show one of your bottles to the expert. Where are your bottles? At which point we realized that because these had really, in, in our understanding, the bottles had really related more to the fact witnesses, evidence once that evidence was completed we had taken the bottles into our meeting room in the hotel and drank them <laughs> oh, um, we uh, we literally drank the evidence and got caught pretty red-handed for it oh, that's fantastic yeah so, i don't think we've heard that one before <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so 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 what about you pontus have you ever been drinking your evidence well i i couldn't top uh, laura's no i haven't drank the evidence uh, ever actually uh, but that was a good idea. I, I, I think that I should uh, sometimes. 
it's not easy to find these hilarious moments from from a courtroom because uh, courtrooms are often not that funny. But I had an incident a couple of years ago when we were in a hearing that lasted for a week in, in a court. And for some reason, the other party, uh, who was a private person, he was very frequently exploring the, the social media. So for some reason, he had gathered a crowd that was supporting him. And that crowd grew stronger and stronger for each day. So they had to close the court for more spectators because they, they couldn't find a room in the courtroom. And it was hilarious because they were shouting and screaming and they were taking these group pictures of this private person who was not a famous one and the case was not even interesting so but the crowd grew stronger and stronger and there were people outside the court that was shouting and screaming about this case that was it has no no value for publicity or whatever no newspapers were there but he through social media he he had created this sort of clan that that followed the entire proceedings I, I don't know if they understood anything but it was very interesting did they come with placards yeah they, well almost they they were shouting they were screaming they were sharing uh and and it was uh, it was ridiculous because uh the guy had sold his company during the financial crisis and he wanted the company back so it was nothing really spectacular, but I think there were more than 50 people in the end that was sharing him. He lost the case. <laughs> Did you get hate mail after that? Maybe you have to employ his techniques, you know, when when uh, when you consider the, the claim against the Swedish government for uh, the, you know, the fjell <laughs> having shrunk for, for your hike on the basis of, of you know, uh, lack of climate action. You had a legitimate expectation that you would be climbing the highest mountain and you were not. Yeah. And then you can share the uh, the evidence with them afterwards or during the hearing as well. So and drink it. <laughs> Finish it at the top. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, this is a great place to end the episode at. So thank you, Laura, very much for coming. My pleasure. And thank you, Pontus, very much for coming as well. Thank you. Thanks, guys. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. We will be back soon with more. In the meantime, we would love to hear from you. If you enjoyed this episode or wish to continue the discussion online, please follow our LinkedIn profile or other Hannah Stellman social media channels. 